We're going to be in uh, Nehemiah chapter 13 this morning, and we'll be as brief as we can today and try to get you out of here on time. And uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, begin reading in verse number 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God, because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them, for each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and of the Levites Padiah, and next to them was Hanan, the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was, at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut, and charged that they must not be opened till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates, so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them, and said to them, Why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves, and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one of the other, one or the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them 
struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them of everything pagan. I also assigned duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service and to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember me, O my God, for good. Father God, we thank you now for the word of God. And as we draw this study in Nehemiah to a close this morning, I pray you'd speak to our hearts. Teach us from even this last chapter, as you have taught us so many times before. I pray, Father, for the filling of your spirit. I pray for clarity of thought, focus. I pray, Lord God, that I would only say those things that need to be said. And I pray that all the things that we have experienced in this service already today uh, would all work together. And that, Father, your will would be done in the lives and hearts of each of these, your people, today. Some today may need to understand the gospel better. They may need to understand what Jesus has done on the cross of Calvary for them. I pray that throughout this day that becomes clear. And I pray, Lord, if there are believers here who need to think about what happened here in Jerusalem, uh, this great disappointing chapter, I pray, Lord God, that you'd speak to hearts today. Whatever your will is, do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been now, this is our 13th week in the book of Nehemiah, and we are finally drawing it to a close today. As Solomon said in uh, his closing thoughts of Ecclesiastes, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. And so that's what we're going to do. And I imagine some of you are sitting there scratching your heads and you're saying, now, I was here last week, preacher, and I happen to know that last week we were in chapter 10. How in the world did we get to chapter 13 today? Well, I will tell you. I took one look at chapter 11, and chapter 11 is primarily a long list of names, and uh, there's not a lot of detail there uh, that is helpful to us at this time. There are a few things in chapter 11 which might be of some interest. In chapter 11, we see that uh, they, they initiated urban renewal. Uh, you will remember that when Nehemiah first came to Jerusalem, clear back in chapter 1, chapter 2, uh, the, there was so much rubble in the streets that his horse couldn't even pass through that. I think that was chapter 2, verse 14, maybe. His horse couldn't even pass through the streets. And so obviously very few people were actually living in Jerusalem during those days. But now the wall is back and all that has taken place. And so one of the things that had to happen is people had to start moving back into town. That happened in chapter 11. Uh, but you can read about that on your own and in your own studies. I don't think we need to spend any time on that. If you look at chapter 11, verse 1, you'll see they cast lots and 10% of the people who were living in the surrounding areas moved back into the city limits to help repopulate the city. It's interesting. It's interesting. But we'll leave that for you in your personal study. And I think we're going to skip chapter 12 as well, primarily because not very long ago we preached a separate sermon out of chapter 12. And you don't want to hear that again, do you? You don't want to hear me repeat that same thing again. So we'll just uh, we'll just pass that one by. Uh, so a, couple, a year or so ago when we did our kitchen remodeling downstairs, we preached out of the, the portion of chapter 12 here where Nehemiah dedicates the wall. And we preached on that phrase, celebrate the dedication with gladness. And we were celebrating. 
and they were celebrating. And that's a valid part, and maybe even the culminating part of all that Nehemiah accomplished took place there in chapter 12, when they had this great and wonderful dedication of the wall. But again, I'll let you read that on your own, and study that on your own. If you want to go out on our websites, you can find that old sermon, if you have some... I don't know, would it be masochistic for someone to want to go out and read that old sermon? But it's out there somewhere. But what we're going to do today then is skip forward to chapter 13, the very last chapter, and just kind of draw all this to a close here this morning. And the first thing that we notice when we go to chapter 13 is that something different has occurred. A break has occurred somewhere in the action. Uh, One of the things that we notice is that for some period of time here, Nehemiah has disappeared from the scene. He has not been there. And we know that because of chapter 13 and verse number 6. It says, but during all this, I was not in Jerusalem. That's pretty clear, wouldn't you say? For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. And then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king. Now, we don't know exactly how long Nehemiah was gone. Let me read you a quote from uh, James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on Nehemiah. Here's how he describes the situation. He says, Nehemiah 13 concerns a time somewhat removed from the first chapters. The first indication is in verse 6, where Nehemiah explains that he had returned to Babylon in the 42nd year of Artaxerxes, and that what he is recounting now was some time later. It appears from this that Nehemiah had two governorships of Judah. The first, which he has described in Nehemiah chapter 5, extended from the 20th to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. That is, it lasted for 12 years from 445 B.C. to 433 B.C. Some commentators consider it unlikely that Nehemiah spent all 12 of those years in Judah, judging that he must have returned to Babylon shortly after the victories of his first great year, and perhaps only returning intermittently during the 12-year period. But Nehemiah does not say this. On the contrary, the gap in which the problems of chapter 13 developed seems to have been between the end of his first 12-year assignment and the second assignment years later. How many years? There is no way of knowing, since Nehemiah is vague. Presumably, a considerable period of time elapsed because the problems of the final chapter are major ones and would not have happened overnight. Guesses for the year of Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem run from 425 to 420 B.C., dates near the end of the reign of King Artaxerxes. The significant thing is that Nehemiah was now considerably older. He must have been at least 40 when he left Susa for Jerusalem the first time. The end of his first government governorship would have brought him to the age of 52. And if we are now in the years 425 to 420 B.C., Nehemiah must have been near 65. So old man Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem after a long period away. What did he discover upon his return back to Jerusalem? And what can we apply from that to our lives here? That's how I want to divide our few comments this morning. What did he discover when he got back? And are there any applications to us here, Friendship Bible Church, this morning? Number one, what happened during Nehemiah's absence? Well, in the uh, simplest terms we can put it, everything went to pieces and everything fell apart. That's what happened while he was gone. If you look here at this passage, it just seems like everything that had been put in place was no longer in place. Everything that they had promised that they would do, they went back on their word. Everything. Let's look at a few things that took place. In in verses 4 through 9, here we see Tobiah was still, or should we say again, causing problems. Now, we haven't heard about this creep in a while, have we? Tobiah? 
We heard about him way back in the very first part of our study in Nehemiah, but his name has been absent for some time now. And, and we might have come to the thought in our, in our minds as we went through that great period of revival from chapter 8 on, where they brought out the book and they, they, they read and studied and, and just uh, they, they, they came to this great wonderful time of revival and the, the renewing of the Feast of Tabernacles and Trumpets and all that stuff and all these good things took place. Where was Tobiah? He was laying low. Apparently we never saw him anywhere. And we would almost think that maybe that uh, his influence was gone. And yet apparently he was still there. And apparently he was just waiting his opportunity. And apparently his influence had, by the time Nehemiah comes back now, reached even to Eliashib the priest, who was one of great, the great allies of Nehemiah throughout the entire project earlier on. What did Nehemiah do about it? Well, I, I like Nehemiah. You guys have probably figured that out. He was a man's man. He clearly had not mellowed in his old age, which I like that about him, too. I like the way he dealt with Tobiah's infiltration here. He just <laughs> kicked him out in the street. No diplomacy. No talking it over. No, uh, you know, uh, no, no nice uh, trying to come to a consensus or anything. Out in the street. So Tobiah, the enemy was still causing problems. That's one of the things that he discovered when he got there. Another thing we see in verses 10 through 14 was that the Levites were not being provided for. Now, you remember the people had promised that they would give to support the temple and the worship and the, and the Levites and the priests and all that. They had promised that they would tithe. All of that was part of the covenant that they had signed in chapter 10 that we just talked about last week. And now those who were supposed to be dedicated to the full-time service of God had had to flee back to the fields just to feed their families because that promise was not being kept. Look at verse number 11. I contended with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Isn't that an interesting question that Nehemiah would ask them? Why is the house of God forsaken? It's interesting because of the very last summary statement that everybody made in the great covenant that they wrote and signed and sealed in chapter 10. The very last words of chapter 10 is, we will not neglect the house of our God. That was their promise. Nehemiah's question, why is the house of God forsaken? Uh, I read something interesting in Phil's class this morning. Got me thinking about this as well. He was talking about the chronology of the Bible and where various prophets fit in. And one of the things that I read in my study is that all throughout this time, uh, Malachi would have probably been on the scene preaching to this group of people. And Malachi is the one who preached so firmly about tithing. Bring you all the tithes into the storehouse. Prove me now herewith. Perhaps because of this very situation. They had promised they'd do it. They hadn't done it. The Levites had had to flee back to the fields. And so that's the second thing that he discovered. The third thing he discovered is in verses 15 through 22. All the promises that they had made about the Sabbath had gone by the wayside. Remember their Solomon, 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 I can't say that word this morning, Solomon promise they had made in chapter 31 of verse 10. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we would forgo the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every debt. And what happens? People come in and they start selling wares and they start buying. They immediately had gone back. Well, not immediately, over some period of time. They had gone back. On their promise. Nehemiah dealt with this one kind of in an interesting way. Verses 17 through 18, he confronted them, first of all. Verse number 19, he removed the opportunities to violate the Sabbath by simply closing the gates and removing the merchants. 
you know, the, the solutions to our problems oftentimes are the simple ones. He just locked the door. That's all he did. But then I love the last part, verse number 21. This is one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. Verse number 21. I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. I like that. I will beat you about the head and neck, is basically what he said, if you don't hit the road. And so, Nehemiah, man's man, I like that about him. But he discovered that they had not been uh, true to their promise about the Sabbath. A third thing is, uh, or fourth thing is, uh, that they had promised to avoid intermarriage. You will remember that. Uh, And obviously, that, like all the other commitments in the covenant, had been abandoned. Such intermarriage was taking place, and not only taking place, but had even reached all the way to the family of the priests, we see in chapter, in verse 28 and 29. So the simple fact is that when Nehemiah returns, what does he find? He finds that every single commitment they had made, they had gone back on. Every single one. And if you can compare verse number, chapter 13 to verse number 10. You're intelligent people. You can go off and do that on your own. Compare those two and you will see that every promise they made in chapter 10, they broke in chapter 13. So that's what he found. What applications can we make? You know, at first, at first glance, this could be pretty depressing, couldn't it? I mean, this book has been such an uplifting book to me. Then we come to chapter 13 and everybody falls on their face. It could be depressing, could it not? It could be even downright disgusting after all the reforms, all the building, all the battling, all the revival, all the commitment, all the promises. After all was said and done, these people seemingly drifted back to right where they started. Every promise abandoned and forgotten. And Nehemiah, who has accomplished so much in his life, and now is in, uh, is in his latter years, uh, he could have come back, he could have seen such devastating breaches had occurred. And he could have said, got on his horse and turned around and, and went right back to, Ar- to Artaxerxes and his service there. He could have considered these regressions signs of failure. He could have thrown in the towel, but he did not. He persisted. He did not give up. He reminded, he reinstituted what had been forgotten. He fixed, he corrected, he rebuilt, he kept on keeping on. He even seemingly single-handedly threatened the enemies of the ark with a good smackdown if they did not listen to what he was trying to do. I can't wait to get to heaven and shake Nehemiah's hand. I can't wait. There are applications to Friendship Bible Church in here, and I'll just mention a couple for sake of time this morning. But I want you to think about these. And they kind of are applications from this chapter, but also just applications as we wrap up our whole series this morning. You'll remember this series has been entitled Building, Battling, and Becoming. The applications I see are these. Number one, the building never stops. Never stops. The wall was completed in 59 days, but the building never stops. And you know, you and I, the, 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 the need for us to actively participate in serving God doesn't end on this earth ever unless God decrees that it has. He's the one who decides that. I, I've, I've mentioned many times here, it's, a, it's an illustration from my childhood that sticks in my mind and that comes to my mind quite often, and it came to my mind as I was preparing this service. I've mentioned many times about a, a board meeting that I recall in this church when I was a child. And uh, it was a particularly contentious board meeting. That was something that was quite common back then when we had board meetings. We don't have them anymore, so we don't have that problem. During this particularly contentious board meeting, a member stood up and suggested that another member should serve as chairman of the board. 
We don't have that problem anymore either because we don't have chairman of the board because I, frankly, am unable to find that title in any version of the Bible I've ever picked up. But nonetheless, that was what was suggested. And the thing that I remember the most is this other person, the person who had been suggested for the office, his wife, leaped to her feet and in a very angry voice said, No, he has done his part. He has served his time. Now that may not seem like anything to you, but here's what it did in my little small childish brain. It has always stuck there as an example of how some Christians believe that their service for God is a portion of their life. Just a piece. Just a part. I have done my part. I'm not going to do more. I can imagine God saying to me, if if I was to say that, I I, I don't want to serve anymore. I've done my part. I can imagine God saying to me, well, you're still breathing. And I haven't called the game yet. It's not over. And it's very important for us to understand. The building goes on forever. Jesus' parable of the pounds begins with these words. He called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. Occupy till I come. That's in Luke chapter 19 and verse number 13. Two thoughts jump out of me whenever I think about those words. Occupy means be busy, be serving. That's what it means. But how much? How long? Until when? Until I come. Building never stops. God wants us walking and serving until he calls the game. In this life, we will never come to a place where we can lay down that trowel. Ever. Until he tells us we can. You know, and it's interesting, as we look back through Nehemiah, these people were, were serving God, they were on fire for God, they were doing great things for God as long as they were building. And when the building stopped, that's when it became difficult. The building never stopped. Second application is pretty obvious. I think you're going to understand right where we're going with this. The battling never stops. The battling and the need for vigilance. The enemies are always waiting and watching for an opening. I find it fascinating that we come down to the end of this book, and there's Tobiah again. And we get a little bit further down toward the end, we find out the Sambalath is there too. Those two nasty, creepy guys who have caused so much trouble to Nehemiah and all these people throughout the whole story have been laying in wait the whole time. The enemies are always waiting. Our enemy is always waiting and watching for an opening. Paul, or Jude said in Jude verse number 3, he said, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Battling never stops. Paul said to the Philippians, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand Fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel of battling never stops. Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called and have confessed a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The battling never stops because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The battling never stops. The third Application, I would suggest, is this. The best of us have not become all we need to be for God. Or the becoming never stops. The journey toward becoming a man or woman of God is lifelong. Sanctification is the big Bible word for that, and it's a process. Starts when we get saved, ends when we get to glory. You know, I think all believers ought to read Pilgrim's Progress. 
How many of you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Ooh, I think that's more than I expected. It's not too bad. Pilgrim's Progress, I believe, is one of the things next to the Bible every Christian ought to read because it so entertainingly and brilliantly describes that process that a person goes through on their walk to the celestial city. Paul described that process this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 18. He said, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. That's the process. As we keep our eyes on Christ, as we keep walking in Christ, walking in the spirit, we become more and more like him. That process of becoming what God wants us to be, it's lifelong, never stops. Paul said, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not there yet. Tonight, our 610 team is going to meet. If you're part of that project, I hope you'll be there tonight. Our 610 are going to meet once again, and once again, we're going to consider what does God want our church to do for the next five years. When I first started thinking about this whole 610 thing, some months ago, a verse came to my mind somewhere in my devotions as I was reading. I came across this verse, and it was as the children of Israel stood with their backs against the Red Sea. Seemingly a hopeless, terrible situation. The, the, the greatest army in the world coming down upon them, and no hope. And Moses, of course, turned to God and prayed. And I love God's response to Moses. The Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me? Speak unto the children of Israel that they go forward. Even when things look hopeless, the answer was to go forward. That's what we've been trying to do with the 610 Project. Lord, how do we go forward for you every single day, even for the next five or six years? No matter where we are in our walk with him, we're not where we ought to be yet, and we need to keep going forward. The becoming never stops. Two more that maybe don't fit our outline, but two more. Obvious applications, I'll just mention, it will be done. The need for prayer never stops. When we first met Nehemiah, what was he doing? He was praying. Verse number four of chapter one, he was praying. And here at the very end, the very last words we hear from Nehemiah, remember me, oh my God, for good, he's praying. The need for prayer never stops. I know we talk about it ad nauseum. I know we do. And I know we do silly, quaint old things like we have a prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. And by the way, every single one of you ought to be in that, but. Uh, I know we do all those kinds of things. But you know why we do it? It's because prayer works. And because it's God's way for us to get things from God. Nehemiah knew that. He knew it. We've seen it over and over. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. And I believe he trembled constantly in the presence of Nehemiah. The need for prayer never stops. And finally, the last. And I want you to think about this one. This one might seem a little strange. The last application, whatever you are gifted to do, whatever you are called to do, whatever God asks you to do, you have a limited amount of time in which to get it done. And you might be looking back through chapter 13 and you might be saying, well, where are you getting that from? I'll tell you where I'm getting that from. I'm getting that from Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 32. Find it there. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 32. Oh, it's not there. The fact is the book ends, doesn't it? Nehemiah's opportunity to serve ended, didn't it? Nehemiah's opportunity to influence others faded from the scene. Others took his place. He passed from the scene. 
What if he had said in chapter 1 when he heard God's call on his life, I, I need to think about that for a while. What if he had said that? What if he had said in chapter 1 when God called him, I'm awfully busy, I'll, I'll think I'll let somebody else take care of that for a while. I'll tell you what would have happened. Nothing. He had a limited amount of time in order to accomplish what God had called him to do. A limited number of productive years. And if he had not done what he did, when he did it, it would not have gotten done. Flip with me to one passage of scripture. I'll read this and we'll be done. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Flip over there, would you? Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We often read this passage of scripture to our young people. And young people should consider this passage of Scripture. It's important to them. Those of us who are not so young, I think, should consider it even more. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Remember now your Creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come. And the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them, while the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of music are brought low. Also they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails. For man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God. Who gave it? Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. You know, we do talk about that to our young people. But you know what that passage is saying? It's saying if you don't serve God now, while you can, there will come a day when you cannot do it. We don't have time to go into all the amazing picturesque language that is in there. Things like the grinders that are talking about your teeth. When the day comes, you don't have enough teeth to even chew your food. We're talking about the fact you can't see out of the windows. Why? Because your eyes have failed because of old age. All that passage is, is a horrible picture of old age. And how there will come a time you cannot do it. You cannot. You might want to. You might have said in your young years, I want to serve God and one of these days I will. There will come a day you cannot do it. And I, I think one of the greatest illustrations, greatest applications we have from Nehemiah this morning is that when the call came, he answered it. And if he hadn't, nothing would have been done. Well, we've spent 13 weeks in the book of Nehemiah, and I hope, I hope that we've learned a few things. I know it has spoken to my heart. I hope that we have learned that this is the sum. The Christian walk is one of building and battling and becoming what God wants us to be. And I hope even more that we'll take it as a challenge that the Christian walk is one in which we need to keep building and keep battling and keep becoming what God wants us to be until God closes the book of our lives and calls us home.